She was uh, going to the McDonald's feed. Oh, she's in the other class. Yeah. Okay. Well, great. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, hope everybody's doing good today. Um, we're going to start off with a prayer. So the Lord be with you. And also with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the people in this space and calling them to worship you through the Episcopal Church. Lord, we pray that you will be with us as we discern your where you're leading us today, where you're calling us to learn and grow in your holy name. All this we lift up in your son's name. Amen. 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 Great. Um, I'm so glad you're here. Um, if you did get through the reading today, then you will know that this is the longest <laughs> section in the book. So I think that it's all downhill from here in a good way you skip the coast um but this one was a long one and we are talking about sacraments today and this is a big section and it's an important part of the church life um just briefly we're going to go around and just say our names um and i don't know tell me what tv show you've been watching that you are enjoying right now just very briefly <laughs> we can chat more about it afterwards if you want to. let's go first Yep. Great. Uh, Robert McDowell. Um, haven't gotten into a new show too much lately, so just doing Seinfeld reruns again. <laughs> yeah, great. Okay, I'm Christy Smith, and I've been watching Mandalorian with my kids. Nice. There you go. Uh, Wesley Mansour and uh, Louie. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, Harry McDowell. Um, I've gotten into Suits recently. Oh, my. <laughs> kind of a binge show. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, sure. Uh, Cass Meltzer, and we gave up television for one. So, wow, this is tough for you guys. Yeah, <laughs> we'll save it for you for Easter. Although it is Sunday, you can cheat on Sunday. <laughs> Caleb Spouser. What she said on TV at the moment. That's great. Well, I didn't know you could cheat on Sundays. Yeah, yeah. Sundays don't count. Yeah. So there's 40 days of Lent, and if you include Sunday, there would actually be 45 days of Lent. So if you Sunday is always a feast day, which is why our bulletin you'll see it doesn't say like the first Sunday of Lent. It says the first Sunday in Lent because they're not technically in Lent. I mean, it's a Lenten Sunday, but it's feast day. So it's not even really a cheat day. Like that sounds too strong. Like you get to do them. Do they do the same in the Catholic Church? I feel um, Catholic, and I feel like I was not allowed that. Probably, <laughs> probably not. But also, like I mean, forty days of Lent is actually longer if you do account for Sunday. So, yeah. So either give yourself more credit for making it through more than forty days, or take your Sundays off if you want to. I'm Kristen Griffin. I don't watch TV. <laughs> Never really got into the tv very much um so i can't tell you which show i watch. 
don't even know what's going on. I'm Emma Clarkson, and yeah, I don't really watch TV either that much. It's great. <laughs> we're just like we're just right hitting the wall here. The TV said, "Yeah." <laughs> I'm Melanie Lee, and I'm Emma's great aunt, and I am watching Discovery in with the old. Oh, okay, great. Hi, I'm Brendan. Um, I'm currently watching um, Letter Kenny. Oh, Recently, right. I turned to that. Mary Michael Smith. Um, we recently been watching Great Point. We like all those docu series on Netflix about <laughs> sports. So. Uh, Wayne Smith. Uh, I've actually been watching Carbon Enthusiasm. Is new. I'm Shannon George, and we've been watching Only Murders in the Building. And Nelson, um, we're watching that scary one that looks. Uh, Can't remember the name of it. McGilded Age. Oh, oh, Griselda. 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 Is it? It's good. Okay. That's that. Yes. Yeah. It's um. Sophia Vergara. Sophia Vergara. Yeah. All I get to say Gloria. Like that is not yeah. right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and, uh, yeah. She does not like to say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. Jason Nelson. Same. Mm -hmm. Um. My name is Emily. Um. And Farley and I have been watching the UK version of the Traitors. If you the show, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's basically like mafia. Like somebody is the traitor, and they're they like mm -hmm. kill people, kill people, and then I have to try to figure out who the traitors are. I can't believe it's, I haven't watched it yet. It's so great. I mean, the American version apparently is like reality TV shows, yeah. but the British version is like like just everyday people. I'm a little bit like I'm watching like the like Stanford Prison Experiment a little bit. I'm like these people are like like actual psychological <laughs> distress, like doing this to each other. But still, it's been very fun to watch. Um, also, Survivor any given day of the week. So, if you're a Survivor fan, please call me. Um, <laughs> Okay, great. So let's talk about the sacraments now. We'll change years. Um, if you did not finish all these chapters, I hope that you will go back and read them because they are really important. Um, full disclosure, I didn't finish chapter eight yet, um, which is about ordination. So I feel like probably got it covered, but um, I will read it. Um, this book is actually really helpful. So as I was going through the marriage one, like in one of the little blocks, it said that it's canonically required for you to get like to sign and I realized I've never done that with a couple so I was like whoopsie so they're not really married yeah so I sent out like letters to all of my married couples this week I was like hey friends um nothing changes you're still married I just also would like to get you send these forms to the book very helpful this is recorded so we'll listen to that to the bishop um okay great <laughs> well, um, so we're going to talk first about the seven, what we call seven. There's there's two, Jack would murder me if I just told you there were seven sacraments. There's two sacraments and five sacramental rites. So can we name them? Two sacraments first are? Baptism and Eucharist. And then the other five sacramental rites are? Marriage. Burial. Not burial. Good guess. Marriage is one. Confirmation. 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 Well, good job. <laughs> Ordination. Ordination. Two more. Uh, confession. 
Consent. Reconciliation, yeah. And then one more. Um, Healing, yeah, unction, yeah, is what unction is the fun word for it. So there's the big difference between a sacrament and a sacramental rite is that the two sacraments are what Jesus instituted in Jesus's lifetime in his ministry. So Jesus was baptized and then tells the disciples to go and baptize and make disciples of every nation. So that's the the commandment from Jesus. And then Jesus at the Last Supper, same thing, basically. We're, you know, we've instituted this as often. Basically, bread and wine were just absolute staples. So what Jesus is really saying in the Eucharist is every as often as you need to eat food, think of what how much God loves you, that God's willing to die for you. So every every time you eat or drink anything basically is what it really is coming down to that you're remembering how much god loves you um and so that's what's happening in the last supper we do that together obviously on sunday morning but that's really what we're sort of what it boils down to um sacrament so those are the big ones um does anyone want to so y'all are obviously here to be confirmed um confirmation is an interesting one so there's some debate i wish jack was here because we could have a we have a fun debate jack um is like not i guess in our confirmation class you know so we did a we did a whole class on sacraments for like the fall so we're gonna you know in an hour run through <laughs> everything that we've been six months doing in the fall but um not really like six weeks doing in the fall basically um but so ordination not ordination i just said on my thing confirmation comes off of baptism because in the episcopal church and in several denominations we practice infant baptism so y'all have all probably seen an infant baptism if you've been here long enough um but basically what you see in an infant baptism is that the parents or this you know the, the godparents usually the parents stand up and they promise to raise a child in the faith of the church so Basically, that confirmation then becomes is as that child has grown up in the faith at that point, you have a chance to say, thanks, mom and dad. Thanks, church. Thanks, people who have supported me in my life in Christ. I'm going to take it from here. So that's what a lot of our youth are doing downstairs. Maybe they've grown up in this faith, and that's what they're doing. The other thing that confirmation is, is that so basically it's a chance to, for adults, which is what you guys are doing here, um, there's a couple of things. Are y'all all doing confirmation? Is anyone doing reception or reaffirmation? You're doing reception or reaffirmation? No, it was confirmed. This is, so so I guess reaffirmation? Reaffirmation, sure. Yeah, well, you were confirmed in the Episcopal Church. Okay, yeah, so reaffirmation is what you'll be doing. Yeah. Um, you're, you were confirmed in the Episcopal Church? Yes. Yeah, so you guys will do a reaffirmation in front of the bishop. Um, so there's, like, there's three within confirmation. There's confirmation. There's reception and then there's reaffirmation. So confirmation is what most of you guys are going through. If you've never been confirmed in a denomination that practices apostolic succession or that we accept as practicing apostolic succession, then you would go through confirmation again. And we'll get to what that means in a couple minutes. Um, if you have been, like if you were in say the Catholic church and coming over to the Episcopal church, we would receive you. It's just like you're just having this moment of being received fully into the Episcopal Church. And then reaffirmation is what you guys are doing right now. It's like, you know, we're just, I, I want to stand up. You know, we don't do 
baptism again. You're not ever going to get baptized again in the Episcopal Church unless for some reason there's a question about whether you were actually baptized in the first place. Um, so if you like in what other places like, you know, like want to rededicate yourself or rebaptize or whatever, this is just a chance for you to stand up in front of the church and say, I'm, I'm committed to this faith. There's a lot of reasons you can choose to do that. You just, you know, feel called to it. Um, sometimes if people have been gone from the church for a very long time, want to come back into the church, they'll do it. Um, you know, if something like just big and momentous has happened in your life and you want to do that, you can. Um, the bishop is highly important in this one. So the bishop will be here. That's why we don't just confirm people on any given Sunday because the bishop, um, she represents basically the church writ large. Does that make sense? So we talk about the one universal, holy, Catholic, apostolic church. She represents that for us or he or whoever, you know, the bishop is at that point because it could be Bishop Ryan as well. But it's Glenda who's coming for us this time. So she'll represent the whole church. So when you guys stand up in front of her and say, we're ready to dedicate our, our, our life to Christ in the Episcopal Church, you're telling her as a representative of the Episcopal Church writ large. That's what she's doing as a bishop. Does that make sense? Yeah, if it doesn't, you can say so. Thank you, going. Because that's the role of a bishop. So basically, like in the early church, right, there were only two types of orders, holy orders. There were deacons and bishops. But as the church kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, bishops couldn't be everywhere that they needed to be. Bishops basically functioned like parish priests. Now, words when you have like three or four churches doesn't work when you've got like Alabama has 84 churches, right? So it doesn't work to have a bishop doing that for everybody. So the institution of the presbyters or priests came in. So we do a lot of what bishops do on a day-to-day -day basis in our individual churches, but not everything. So this is like, but the bishop still is like the unifier. It's the signal, you know, the signal of like the unity of the church. So that's who, that's why you guys will make your profession of faith in front of her. Does that make sense? And that's also why if you're being received, you'll do it in front of the bishop because she's right, she's over in the Episcopal Church as well. So apostolic succession, we talked about this earlier. Um, does anyone know about the apostolic succession? Yeah. Um, apostolic succession means that um, you can trace back the laying on of hands from the bishops backwards to the apostles. Yeah. So that's that's in, I mean, I'm assuming you could do this at some point somehow. Basically, so what, there's an unbroken line when the bishop will lay her hands on your head, this sort of like reception of the Holy Spirit, the bishop will lay her hands on your head, and this will be this moment, like you, so she has a bishop who ordained her, and probably he has a bishop who ordained him, and so on, and so up, you know, or not ordained, it's like take that back, confirmed her, because it's through your confirmation, so I don't know what age Glenda was confirmed, but Glenda has a bishop who confirmed her, who has a bishop who confirmed him, who has a bishop, you know, all the way back on the line. We can definitely do that with all of the American bishops. You can definitely do that through the Anglican Church and into the Anglican Church uh, and in England, obviously. And then you can trace that back to the Catholic Church before the English Church broke off. So we kept the apostolic succession going, which is why. So, for example, there's some question in the Methodist Church of how their bishops were picked and how they were confirmed and how they do their laying on of hands. So, we don't take apostolic succession from the Methodist Church. We do it from the Catholics 
We do from the Evangelical Lutheran Church. Look at one more Moravians. The Moravians. No one's mad at the Moravians. <laughs> they are. They are on everybody's good side. So, um, but that's really cool. So through the bishops, all the way down the line, bishop to bishop to bishop to bishop to bishop, we eventually reached the first bishop of Rome, Peter, who was huddling on hands from Jesus himself. So. Through your confirmation, there's this unbroken line of bishops confirming people and conferring the Holy Spirit that traces all the way back to Jesus, which is really cool when you think about it. I mean, it's just a really cool moment. So when you're being confirmed and when you have that laying on of hands, I hope that you just feel like the weight of history that's sort of coming through humans who have just laid hands on each other all the way back to Jesus. Right? That's pretty cool. I found that cool. That is really cool. Yeah. Yeah, let me. Okay, great. We could talk. I could talk a lot about this stuff. The stuff like makes me nerd out. Um, <laughs> but I do want to talk about the other sacraments, the big ones in here. Um, so baptism. That's our introduction to the Christian life. That's sort of the biggest thing you'll see. Most people don't technically doctrinally. You don't take Eucharist until you're baptized in the Episcopal Church. Um, the reality is, no one is a card hearing member you know i mean that you know that's how that works so ideally you would be baptized and then you would receive the eucharist so baptism becomes the initiation right into the church it's an introduction moment into the church um and then eucharist becomes a sort of every week thing obviously that we do we're a sacramental church this is really important for you all to know we're, we're a sacramental denomination um and so eucharist is this really important sacrament for us um prayer books y'all there's some lying around here so that's the 1979 prayer book right it's like very heavy on sacramentality and sacramental theology if you go back a little bit before like the 1928 prayer book um still it's heavy in sacraments and a very high place of honor for sacraments but like for example baptism is private in the 1928 prayer book we wouldn't baptize anyone privately here now that's not the goal anymore now you would do it in the body of the christian church so you can see how the prayer book changes over time but the 1979 prayer book has a very high opinion of sacraments and it structures our church around these sacramental rites that makes sense um so eucharist obviously is every week right we have this pattern of eucharist we we receive the bread and wine we receive the body and blood of jesus and we go back out into the world we do the work we do the work of being a Christian in the world, and then we come back here at the end of the next week and like get fed again and like gear back up. It's like a battery, I guess. Like you're coming back here to get recharged, and then you go out and do the work, and then you come back here and you get recharged and you go out and do the work. And that's how Eucharist is for us. It's like this re-upping of the Holy Spirit, the re-upping of like your, you know, your faith. Your you're just you know charging up to go back out and do it again. Um, so Eucharist is one that you repeat over and over again. Other ones you don't, right? Other sacraments you would do it one time. Um, I was ordained a deacon and I was ordained a priest. And I won't be ordained a priest again, right? So it's a one-time thing. So um, I think I got a little bit ahead of myself there. But that, so sacraments become either like a lifelong thing to help you through your life as a Christian, or they become for you like spiritual markers, like milestones of things that you've done. Should have said that first. So, but that's how, so, you know, that some of them are like things that you kind of do over and over again in your life as you need to like walk this life of faith and the others become, yeah, mile markers in your life. These momentous things, these markers, these rites of passages that help you like sort of say, this is, I've entered into something new 
while doing this. Marriage is one of those, for example. Ordination is one of those. Baptism is one of those. Confirmation is one of those. Um, these are just milestones, rites of initiation, like this big moment that it's like, here's the Holy Spirit and what's up to your life. Then there are other ones like reconciliation and unction and Eucharist that you have access to as many times as often as you need. Um, I really loved how this book said it. And one of them was that I've never heard this before, but that unction or healing and reconciliation are like wellness ones. Really, I love that. This idea that like your body gets sick and so does your soul. And these are the two things that get you back on track and make you whole and well again. Um, I'll stop there. Does anyone have anything to just like say or anything that you read about that you want to talk about a little bit more um, or anything that you read about that you didn't understand and you want to ask more questions about? Yeah. I am still not super clear on what the role of a deacon is, to be honest with you. Like, I understand the, the concept of they're supposed to send people out into the world, but like in practical matters, what does that look like? Does our church have a deacon? We do not. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but we had before, right? Jane was a deacon. Um, right before I came here, Jane was here and Jane was a deacon. Um, it's a great question. So biblically, I said this a few minutes ago, there's actually just two types of or like two types of orders. Um, there's your bishops and there's your deacons. Um, in the this is a prayer book. This is a prayer book right here. In the very back of it in the catechism, y'all know about the catechism. I will commend it to you. Um, the catechism is a QA. Y'all know what the catechism is, y'all gone over this? Oh, it's so great. The catechism is several pages in the back. It says an outline of our faith. It's a catechism. That's what it is. Uh, and it's in a Q&A form all the way through. And it's super easy to read. If you've not read through it, I commend you. But in here, it talks about who the ministers of the church. And one of them talks about deacons. And it talks about priests. And it talks about bishops. And it talks about lay people. Because lay people are the vast majority of our church's work. Y'all touch way more lives every day in your everyday life than priests can. Because y'all are, you know, it's the vast majority of the church. Jack and I are two people. The bishop's two people in a giant, you know, state. The lay people are doing the work of being Christians out in the world. So um, deacons were specifically charged with, one of the like fun ways of saying it is they bring the world to the church and the church to the world. So basically it's like service making sure we remember those who are less fortunate than we are, the work that we need to be doing as Christians, that's the big role that we can. They are also charged with helping to administer the sacraments, which is why you would see a deacon. So this morning, y'all were in church. I thought you were spilling a lot of information to you guys, but it's great. Jack um, served as the deacon today. I served as the celebrant, and Jack was the preacher deacon today. Last week, we switched. So the deacon is going to read the gospel. They proclaim the gospel. They help with the administration of the sacrament. So Jack set the table today and he cleaned up after Eucharist. So that's a deacon's role. And then Jack also said the dismissal at the very end, because that's a big thing of a deacon. Like let us, this is the very last thing you hear. It's the very final thing in the church service. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Or, um, you know, um, let's go forth in the name of Christ or whatever. That's the very last thing you hear. That's the role of the deacon. All right. Get out there to the work. You come, you've been fed. Time to get to work. You know, that's roll the deacon. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. They don't celebrate the Eucharist. So, like, you'll never see the deacon, like, set the t you'll never see them, like, do the Eucharist. 
Um, but technically, as a dragon and I are both ordained deacons. We're, we're ordained deacons first and then priests. So we've both been deacons and now the priests. It's just what you pass through. But there's not really necessarily a hierarchy. It's too strong. It's just being called to different things. Are all priests deacons? Yes. I feel fairly confident in saying that. Yeah. <laughs> people just stop at being a deacon? And yes. Go forward? Okay. So there's a transitional deacon, which is what Jack and I were. We were ordained deacons on the way no one would be priests and there's vocational deacons so people who feel called to stay and be a deacon like that's the work that they want to do yeah deacons are really important alabama has a really robust deacon ministry which is great um a lot of deacons are involved in outreach in parishes um social justice things um yeah i'm just making sure the church doesn't ever get so insular and comfortable but they're like, we exist to serve ourselves. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So the deacon's big thing. Were you going to say something, Mary? Well, I was going to ask, are they a staff member of the church? Because like I grew up in a denomination where there were deacons, but they were lay yeah. people. And so yeah. it was just the terminology, I think, was getting me hung up. Sure, yeah. Because in some, in some, like I think in the Presbyterian church. I grew up Baptist. In the Baptist church, yeah. there's they're just like deacons. 12 deacons. Yeah. And yeah. It's like what people. we would call vestry yeah. usually. Yeah. yeah. And that's just terminology. Um, yeah. Some, yes, like you would be, yeah, Methodist. Yeah, so you can be a staff person. Okay. Most deacons are not paid. Okay. That's kind of a big, it's somewhat contentious because some are paid, mm -hmm. but like a lot of deacons will tell you that like that you're not supposed to get paid. Like that's not the job of a deacon. Mm -hmm. But others will tell you like we're doing a lot of work, we're not getting paid. <laughs> so. How are they chosen or like, do they volunteer for it or do they have to be? approached by like yeah. you or jack to do sure so the the way i'll, I'll make this a saint because it can be pretty long but so the way that you become ordained in general is that you go through a discernment process um you will have someone usually many someone sometimes just yourself it doesn't have to be external but just to, somehow this call to the ordination um and so you'll go you'll meet with your parish You'll get signed off by a priest. They'll go to the vestry. The vestry will sign off on them, and then they'll go to the diocesan level. And at the diocesan level, then you meet for several, several months, and then you finally go to this one like wild and crazy interview weekend that's called Backham. Um, and at that, you'll meet with the commission on ministry for the diocese. And at the very end of it, they'll give the bishop a recommendation, and the bishop will ultimately decide if you're going to be ordained. Some people going through that process. Are wide open. They're like, I don't know. I feel called to something. Everyone's called to something. Like, let me just say that, like, very, very clearly. Like, you're never gonna get told no. You might not get told yes to the thing that you're wanting to get told yes to, but you're never gonna get told no because being a lay person is vitally important to the church. And so you might get told that, like, we think your gifts are that you're a lay leader of the parish. Um, or you might get told that we think you're a good deacon, like, your gifts seem to fit the role of a deacon. Or you might get told to be a priest. Yeah. Most people going to discernment are looking to be ordained to the priesthood. But some are told, you know, we think you should think about the diaconate, and others are specifically looking for the diaconate. Yeah. Most of our deacons are older. A lot of times you'll see people doing it when they're like retiring, getting close to retirement age. Yeah. We've had some younger ones. I love a young deacon. <laughs> Why don't we have one now? Here? Yeah. We just, there's not enough deacons for every parish. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of times you raise up a deacon from your parish. That wasn't the case for a long time, but it's become the case more recently. And like, we just haven't had anyone really come to us. 
So everyone's like, man, I'm going to be confirmed and then I want to be a deacon. Like, call me. <laughs> <laughs> I should call Jack. <laughs> would you have the authority to keep them here? Or would they have to go it's to the, the bishop, bishop and the bishop yeah. decides who needs it the most? It's the bishop, yeah. So deacons work directly under the bishop. So the bishop uh, places deacons usually. That's not a full time paid job. No, usually it's not paid at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a good question. And I think it's, I think some people do get confused about the roles of deacons and priests. Um, but you'll see deacons, like deacons wear the sideways stoles, they wear like the sashes. Um, just a stole is worn across as a deacon, which, like when Jane was here, like she would have worn her stole this way. Um, so like when I was a, when I was a transitional deacon, we have what's called a deacon's chain that you would just like clip onto your stole because if I have, I have priest stole, they make deacon stoles that are like sit better and look nicer. But if you are, you know, I wasn't going to buy a bunch of deacon stoles. So you get to wear these little chains so you get to the side. Yeah. Great question. What else y'all got? I'm going to back up to okay. like the beginning. Let's go. I should have asked this last week. Okay, great. Where did the Episcopal Church exactly come from? Okay, great. Because, you know, you hear Anglican, you hear like, England sometimes, and discerning the difference between three. Yeah, that's I, great. I don't quite have that. Sure. There, so um, the Anglican Church and the Church of England are the same thing. Um, the Episcopal Church came off of that. So y'all heard of we talked about the Anglican Communion. I've not talked about this. So the Anglican Communion is actually, I think, the third largest worldwide body of Christian believers. The first is the Catholic, the second is the Orthodox, and then the Anglican Communion comes after that. Um, the Anglican Church came from your sweet Henry VIII, um, a lovely man who wanted to divorce his wife um, because he did not have any male heirs. And so he uh, went to the Catholic Church, tried over and over again to get an old. It was not happening because the, I think the Pope at the time was under the rule of Catherine of Aragon's nephew. <laughs> so you see how it gets messy. Anyways, she, so he decides, you know what, we're breaking off the Church of England. We don't recognize the church in Rome anymore. This is happening at the same time that like Martin Luther is working in um, in Germany, fairly close to when um, Jan Calvin is, um, I think it's a little bit earlier than Jan Calvin, but it's close to the same time. So there's a lot of reformation already happening. Um, and there's a lot of people in England who are like, yeah, do this, break off, because they already wanted to reform, reform the Catholic Church there as well. Um, so it's as much of like the, clear, the clergy of England who were reformists using this as an opportunity as it was the other way around as, as him using the church, um, as him the eighth using the church. So they break off um, and have never reunited since then. But one of the important things to know about the Episcopal Church or the Church of England is that they did not want to get rid of all Catholicism. So you see where like Lutheranism became like a lot more like austere than the Catholic Church. Like there wasn't as much like adornment in churches and things like that. And there were lots of ways, like they got rid of a lot of sacraments and just took it down to two. So in England, they were very conscious of not throwing the baby out with the bath one. They're like, we're gonna keep the best parts of the Catholic Church and reform the parts that started to get corrupted. At least that was the goal. Um, and so it became the Via Media. Have y'all heard this? The Via Media, the middle way, that was basically the Episcopal Church. So you'll hear the joke, like our Episcopals 
Catholic or Protestant? And the answer is yes. You know, like <laughs> we kind of try to straddle both worlds. I mean, you'll see that's why if you come here from the Catholic Church, which some of y'all might have, this isn't going to feel super foreign to you. But if you came here from, well, it might actually feel more foreign to you than coming from like a Baptist church than yes. like the Catholic Church. Um, but you'll also hear notes of like, you know, some like we don't go as we don't have a saint. We don't have like the pantheon of saints that like they did. Um you know, we don't we don't venerate Mary like the church said they did. So um, we got rid of a lot of the, the extra biblical biblical things. Like, you know, there's no mention of Mary's mother in the Bible, but in the Catholic Church, her name is Anne. <laughs> so, um, and that's you know not bad, but you know, there's nothing biblical about Anne. <clears throat> so, um, you know, we we went back to like we took we got rid of some of the stuff that they layered on over the years. Um, and then obviously England, you know, sends people colonists to America. We fight a war. Becomes very unpopular to call yourself an Anglican or the Church of England. So we rebrand ourselves and we become the Episcopal Church. And Episcopal is just a fancy word for Bishop. Bishop. Didn't we maintain by going through Scotland? Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if one of these classes is on church history, so I don't want to like steal the super big thunder from that. But yes, we had a. Y'all, y'all seen Hamilton? Mm-hmm. Anyone seen Hamilton? Mm-hmm. Samuel Seabury is in Hamilton. He does not come off looking like the best white. He's kind of just like really mousy dude. Um, but Samuel Seabury is actually um, a pretty important figure in the Episcopal Church. He actually was a loyalist for a while, but then decided that he would you know what, we're breaking off, we're going to do it. And so we tried to make him a bishop, but England was like, not so fast because you guys left and now you don't have any bishops. Like, poo-poo, I guess, you're stuck. And the Catholic, and you know, the Scottish church, which has never been one to miss a chance to foil England, <laughs> sent bishops. We sent bishops, we sent priests to them and they ordained our bishops. For a long time, the Anglican church told us that we were wrong. And we were not right, but they've since recanted that. So that is how we, so the, the Scottish church calls themselves our mother church. Mm-hmm. If you go to a place in Aberdeen, there's like all the American state flags are in there because they call themselves our mother church. Yeah. And as for better or for much worse, the British empire spread around the world. What do they take with them? Disease and clergy. So um, that's how the Anglican communion came to be. So there's a lot of places that have a branch of the Anglican church because they sent clergy to these places and as missionaries and different things like that. So we are very large. I think the Anglican communion, which is what it's still called today with the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Archbishop of Canterbury does not function like a pope. So we have Michael Curry, who's our presiding bishop, his technical title is primate in the Episcopal Church. So the Archbishop of Canterbury, he's just the primate of, of the Anglican Church. There's a primate of the Canadian Church. There's a primate of the um, Australian Church. There's a primate of several different denominations in Africa. Um, actually, some of our biggest membership is in the Global South in Africa. Um, so the Archbishop of Canterbury does not have any direct say over what happens like the pope does it's not like that it's not a one-for-one he's just one of many many primates in the episcopal church yeah and the anglican communion is kind of made up of like 
four unifying instruments. Mm -hmm. And of one of those is the Archbishop of Canterbury. The other would be like the Anglican Consultative Council, mm -hmm. which is made up of kind of like the member churches. They all send a representative of that. Um, there's a Secretary General. Secretary General. And then there is the. I forget now. Uh, That's way up in church. Yeah. My face is so hot, you guys. It's burning up right now. Yeah, but there's this, there's four kind of unifying instruments that we as Anglic or Episcopal Anglicans around the world unite under, and the Archbishop of Canterbury just happens to do one of those. Yeah. We got censored recently. The Episcopal Church did. Oh. The Episcopal Church in America, we got we got censured recently because we have we voted to allow same-sex marriages oh, in the church. That. Yeah, that was... 2016, I think, is when the censure happened. Yeah, I'm not sure if we're still under censorship or not right now. I probably not because a lot of churches have followed suit, but to be nothing. I mean, publicly. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, like, we were, you know, they kind of shook their finger at us. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, for, I mean, again, for better or for worse, like the Episcopal Church, even though we're not. So there's about 2 million um, Episcopalians in America. Um, that number was shrinking, but it's actually kind of leveled off recently, so it's a, it's a good sign. Um, so we're not, we're not just we're like all mainline churches, you know, so we're not just that's good news. Um, but yeah, so it's football, a lot of money comes from the Episcopal Church. Um, the, the Episcopal Church tech, sometimes you'll hear it, the Episcopal Church tech. Uh, 815, which has a, an office at 815, I think some street, Broadway or something, it in New York. Um, the Episcopal Church has like 20 billion in assets. That's a lot of money because all those first churches were Episcopalian. I mean, like the early, early, early church in America from the very beginning because it was all Anglican until it wasn't. Fun fact is, it used to be the official church of the uh, southern U.S. before the revolution. Yeah, probably with the Civil War. Maybe even and I've lasted a while here. Yeah. Um, yes. I think we need a road trip to D.C. to the um, to the which is a fiscal which is a fiscal which is why you'll see like when major politicians die yeah you'll see them there doing a funeral there usually you'll see like michael curry will be there her representing more presidents have been at this than any other because all the first ones are supposed to be. But we have one not long ago. I think um, George A. Bush was the first. W is Methodist. He switched to the Methodist. Yeah. He grew up in the school. And four. Great. Do y'all have more questions? What time is it? Okay. Well, actually, I could keep going forever. I could just like answer questions forever and ever and ever. Um, let's do talk about the sacraments really quick. So we talked about the first few. Um, there's the marriage, obviously. Um, marriage is that one's actually been a little more controversial recently. Um, marriage is now in the Episcopal Church. We would say that between two consenting adults is um, marriage. Um, it is not again we call it a sacramental right just like all the other five that we talked about because it's not something that jesus says is like instituted in his lifetime um marriage actually wasn't a sacrament for a long 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 time because 
it just didn't need to be. It was thought of as like a state institution for a long time. And then people were like, well, I got married, but like, this is again, like we talked about, this is a big moment in my life. Like I've, you know, irrevocably gone from being like my own person to part of a pair, you know? So like, this is, you know, this the church should get involved in this. And so eventually it did and it became a sacrament. Um, confession and reconciliation this is one that we kind of do every week. You do like a baby confession, like every week, but it's a corporate confession, just meaning that we do it all together. And we're not necessarily talking about our specific sin so much as we're talking about we're human beings and we all sin. So we do that together before we take Eucharist and you'll be absolved by a priest. That again is something a deacon, a deacon does not pronounce pardon. A, a priest can pronounce pardon. Um, so, but there is a service in the prayer book, and I think Jack mentioned this, I think a couple of weeks ago in the Sunday school class, um, or like if something, if you feel like you've just done something and you can't let it go, like I did this one thing and it was really, really bad and I just can't let it go. You can sit down and you can talk to a clergy person about it and then um, they might maybe say like this is what you need to do to make it right like if you've hurt someone they might say like I think you need to go and like apologize to them too um, and then you can pronounce pardon and it's this thing where it's like this is done it's put away and that's a gift that God has given us forgiveness of our sins um, and if you do go through reconciliation you will the priest will not bring it up to you again you can bring it up to them and we can continue to talk about it afterwards if you want to but like it's just absolute um, we'll never bring it up to you and we will never tell anyone what we've talked about. It's absolute. In some places, people have gone to jail for it. Um, I don't expect that to happen, but if you can, it's, it's happened in some states. Some states like Alabama have protected a clergy class, but I still am a mandated reporter. Like if someone confesses something to me about children being hurt, I am mandated to report that. So there you go, fun facts. Um, unction, we talked about uh, this, I think, too, in that class, if y'all happen to be at that class, um, but it's a healing rite. Um, some people argue that this one should be a sacrament, not a sacramental rite, because Jesus does a lot of healing, and Jesus says to go and heal people and sends out his disciples in his name to heal people. So there are some who argue that this should be a sacrament and not a sacramental rite. Um, but in the prayer book, there are some really actually lovely prayers um, if you are ever in a time of sickness yourself, you could call a clergy person um, and they'll come and be with you. And then we'll use usually oil. That's um, that's what we'll use. Um, and then we've talked about a lot about ordination. So those are the other five sacraments. Um, there's a lovely definition for a sacrament in the prayer book that says a sacrament. Does anyone know it? It's an outward expression of inward grace. Yeah, it's an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. Yeah. So what it doesn't say, and this is really important, is we're talking about just overall sacramental theology right now. What sacramental theology doesn't say is that it creates something new. It's an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. So my husband and I, for example, when we got married, you know, did our relationship change? You know, no, we went, we came, you know, they're loving each other. We left there loving each other. Like we, you know, had this relationship that was already in existence. And did we change? Yes. You know, it was, it was completely changed. 
but not but not change. Does that make sense? So it's like this both and in sacramental theology. Like you are, it's still the same relationship and it's changed. Um, and you'll see that a lot. Like, you know, we're not necessarily saying that in this moment is this like lightning strike thing, like God loved you before you were baptized. And still baptism is important because it becomes for us this like outward and visible sign, this tangible thing for us to interact with that points us to the holy and the divine in our everyday lives. That's what we're trying to do with our sacraments. It seems very, and, and you'll see like, okay, so we think about a lot in the Bible. Let's think about like the parables. Jesus doesn't talk about like, you know, he's not talking about like, you know, I don't know. What we're looking for, you know, like, like atoms, you know, he's not talking about things that just don't exist and like they do exist, but like we don't interact with them on an everyday basis. We're not talking about like metaphor, you know, physics here. We're talking about like bread. He just talks about bread and sheep and coins and pearls and, you know, people and families and things like that and wine. And that's what Jesus talks about. Like these are the things that you use to get closer to God. You don't have to like go stand on a mountaintop. It must be everyday things that you interact with that can point us to the holy. And that's what our sacraments are. So when we talk about the outward invisible signs, I mean, you've got bread, you've got wine, you've got water, you've got oil, you've got metal, you've got, you know, your interpersonal relationships with people. You've got, um, you know, plastic collars. I mean, these are things that like we use to signify something beyond ourselves. They're just everyday items, you know. This collar didn't come from anything different than like any other piece of plastic, you know. That's just what it is. That bread that we have in church, that tawny port is not <laughs> different than anything else. You know, it's just it's just wine. Um, but it becomes for us something greater because of the work that we do as people in worshiping God with each other. How does that sound? Yeah. Good. That's our that's what we that's our sacramental theology. Time is it? Oh my gosh! Wow, we did it. <laughs> Do I have any other questions for me? Do I have any questions? Like big questions about sacraments? I noticed in there that baptism was one that can be for be performed by a lay person in emergency situations. Sure. How is that defined? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. So when you open up our prayer book. Um, I don't, sorry, I don't have any on your table, but when you go to the baptismal service on page what, 299, um, if it doesn't say, yeah, 298, and I won't read all of this, I think it's here the concerning the service. If it's not there, it'll be on page 312. Um, but there's, so it'll talk about like if you're in a situation where, here it is, it's on, it's on 313. So conditional baptism and emergency baptism. So if you're in a situation, <laughs> And someone is dying, you know, and is like, I've never been baptized and I want to be baptized. Guess what? You all have the magic hands in that moment. You are able to baptize someone in that moment. The only thing that's really important is that you baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So that's what we would say. Two things that we would say you need in any baptism are a Trinitarian structure, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and water and water is like the most i think you know that's the one if you can pretty much do anything. i think in this book he literally says you can use spit like anything you know you can use whatever you need to but like water is what 
those are the two things you would need water and the trinitarian blessing so when i when i worked in seminary in a hospital um we do a thing called clinical pastoral education and i did not have to do this but a friend of mine who was a seminarian was there when a baby a, a baby was born um it's a stillbirth i think but the mother really wanted to have this child baptized and so my friend who was a seminarian not ordained at the time did the baptism and if you work like in a hospital i think a lot of neonatal nurses will talk about how they've baptized lots of infants um good news if they happen to survive and they are like wow i made it then we would bring them back to church and you would baptize them in a full service if you don't know i can even tell you in here conditional baptism here it's fun on 313 conditional baptism and there's a reasonable doubt that a person that has been baptized with water in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit which are the essential parts of baptism and the person is baptized in the usual manner but with these words if not if you are not already already baptized i baptize you in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit because we're not baptizing twice you know we're not that's just not what we do here that's not how well we understand the sacrament of baptism to have been passed down to us at any age at any age yeah when we baptized Kat a few weeks ago mm -hmm. um everyone was like where's your baby yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Jack gave me so much grief because he's like, I thought you were gonna like dunk her in the bowl. And I was like, she had her hair done, she had makeup on, and I was like, what are you going to do? I was like, just, just, like splash it in her face. And pastoral, okay. My fun fact is I actually had one of the few baptisms that were in, that explicitly did not count because uh, it was non-Trinitarian. I was baptized Jehovah's Witness, and they they are very firmly non-Trinitarian. They do not believe in the Trinity at all, and they like publicly disavow it. So I had one of the few baptisms that does not count going over. So. Yeah, there's not a lot. Yeah, there's just a few denominations that we do not accept, just like totally as it is. Yeah. Um, Sometimes that the opposite is not always true about the Episcopal Church because we were baptized as infants. In some places, they will want you to be baptized as an adult. We don't think that's that church. Yeah, like in the Baptist Church, you can be dedicated as a baby, but you're not like that's not the same thing as like being saved, as we would say. Like, yeah, you need to be old enough to make the decision and declare it, and then yeah put in the hidden bathtub oh um the holy hot tub, the holy hot tub. <laughs> um <laughs> but so yeah we I know mean, ours did come off of and this is why the catholic church baptizes as infants as well i mean it's you know it came out of a time when what, like a third of infants didn't survive you know past the first year or so if you're you know you're gonna die i mean you know and people are like well if you can't get into heaven without being baptized then what are we what are we doing here so baptized infants yeah um it is biblical don't let anyone tell you that it's not biblical that infants have been baptized uh paul is i think it's paul could be peter who is with um a roman government official's family and at that point it says he and his whole household which would include like servants and everybody were baptized and it's very hard to believe but there were infants involved in that household so um it doesn't specifically say infants but the whole family was baptized at that point 
I've heard people use the justification too of Jesus saying, let the young children come to me and other such things to indicate that the, and I think in the book it said something about like, regardless of whether or not you understand, everyone already is invited to be part of God's family. Mm -hmm. So the parents are just making the pledge to make sure that child is involved, yeah. but they already were welcome to be. Yeah, and if you read the book, um, you'll see like how confirmation mirrors baptism. It starts off, it's so close to that service. Um, it starts off in the exact same language. Um, you know, there's one hope in God's call to us. I mean, there's, you know, it starts off with the exact same opening sentences. Um, it has the same kind of like, you, you do your baptismal, covenant again. I mean, we're going to read through like what we're promising here because it really is. I mean, for me, I was, I was confirmed at, at like 12 or 13. So, you know, it was really like a moment for me to say, thanks mom and dad. And this means a lot to me and I'm going to keep going on my own now. And so that's honestly like what you're saying, like to make a mature profession of faith as about yeah, that's what we're, yeah. yeah, that's what we're giving you the chance to do here as well. Yeah. In front of the church, capital T, capital C. I feel like I talked a lot today. I was like, I told Doug, I was like, oh my God. He was like, you can just print the leadership guide. The leadership guide was 50 pages. Yeah, I, was like, <laughs> I was like, we're just going to run today. So I'm sorry I talked at y'all. I love to give more chance for like, people to talk and have like conversations in small groups. This is a lot to get through this week. So um, next week, you guys will be talking about, let's open our book and find out. Making time. Oh, okay, so structure your life around um, prayer. And then it also looks like the daily office you guys were talking about as well. The liturgical calendar, Easter and Holy Week, and then the burial office. Those are some really important ones. Yeah, burial is not a sacrament, interestingly enough. So that's what we're talking about next week. Do your reading. It's a good book. It's like... 16 point font, so I feel pretty confident. <laughs> if you got through this week, you can get through next week, just shorter. Okay, well, my friends, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thank you. Thanks yeah. be to God. Right. If we're early, one minute. <laughs> You're gonna be, yeah. I don't know who's teaching, actually. Look at me or Jack, one of us. We've